0: Howdy. Before we begin today, we'd just like to take a minute to thank Brian R. for leaving a great review on iTunes. It's one thing you can do to really help promote the show and share the word. And while you're at it, tell a friend, tell two friends, tell three friends. Tell them how to install a podcast app and get them started to get their Texas IQ up there. If you like what we're doing, be sure to go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast so you can financially support the show. And a bit of quick news. The state of Texas has unveiled a new memorial on the Capitol grounds for the Vietnam War and the Texans who served there. Please be sure to check out last week's episode where we talked about Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. And now, on with the show. You know, the news is going to say in a shocking new statistic, <laughs> horse-related horse-related <laughs> pistol injuries are up 226% <laughs> in rural Texas. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkoski.
1: I'm Sean McIver.
0: And I'm Scott Elfstrom. We're joined by our special guest today, regular contributor Paul Schmel, and by Aaron Heath, host of the Gun Rights in Texas show. Today, we're talking about the history of gun rights in Texas. The abiding image of Texas is that of the frontier cowboy with a six-shooter in his holster and a bowie knife tucked in his belt. Throughout its history, the Lone Star State has been associated with firearms, and this week we take a look at some of that history. But first, what's your favorite weapon Chuck Norris has used in a movie? Well, I'll just jump in first and say that uh, I'm a big fan of the assault robot he used uh, and for urban pacification at one point. I think his code is silence. Which makes total sense, you know, when you're in downtown Chicago to have a eight-foot killing robot <laughs> for a police officer. Aaron, Aaron, what's yours?
2: Well, my personal favorite weapon that uh, Chuck Norris has had in a movie would be Sheriff Dan Stevens' single-action Army Colt 45 with ivory grips that he used in Silent Rage.
0: Okay, see... You're gonna pick a non-ironic one, <laughs> but that's fine. That's a great weapon.
3: <laughs> um, does the total gym count? Has he used that as a weapon? <laughs> if not, then I'd have to go with whatever the, that giant cannon he uses in Lone Wolf McQuade. Oh, that is quite a that is quite
0: a handgun. <laughs> yeah.
4: Personally, I go for the two mini Uzis that he had in Invasion USA in the shoulder belts. That was pretty cool.
0: I I miss the 80s.
1: <laughs> well, gentlemen, you're all wrong. Chuck Norris is a weapon.
0: Boom! There it is right there. Gotta admit, that's right. Known for its longhorn cattle, western hats, boots, and a don't mess with us attitude, some might find it strange that Texas has no official firearm. Were it to adopt one, the most likely candidate would be the 1847 Walker Colt 44 revolver, which is the predecessor of the Colt 45 Peacemaker, the so called, quote, gun that won the West. Designed by a former Texas Ranger, Samuel H. Walker, in collaboration with Samuel Colt, the Walker Colt became the official firearm of the Texas Ranger, and thus the famous six-shooter was born.
1: As we've talked about in previous episodes, the Texas Rangers developed a reputation as men who could not be stampeded. The earliest Rangers were the forefathers of the organization, and they built its reputation for fearless and tenacious action against outlaws and Indians. In the Mexican-American War, they were known as Los Diablos Tejanos because of their fighting skills and ferocity. In truth, though, in the earliest days of the Texas frontier, as far back as the earliest Spanish settlements, it was almost expected that men and boys would be armed, usually with rifles, but also with pistols. The rifle and pistol were needed as much for sustenance as they were for protection from the various dangers of the wild frontier. The rangers themselves were only a semi-formal entity, and ordinary citizens would and could ride with the Rangers when responding to an Indian raid or an incursion by Mexican troops or outlaws. It wasn't until after the Texas Revolution, though, that the multi-shot pistol, the revolver, became practical for everyday use. In
3: 1839, the Republic of Texas ordered 180 36 caliber revolvers for the Texas Navy. Known as the Patterson Colt, this new weapon was the brainchild of Connecticut inventor Samuel Colt. It was a smallish five shot revolver that came in three calibers 28, 31, and 36. The revolvers soon found their way into the hands of the Texas Army and other adventurers, and in 1843, the Texas Rangers obtained Patterson's for their use. Previously, if a Ranger wanted to have five shots at his disposal, he'd have to carry five single shot cap and ball pistols. It sounds cumbersome.
4: <laughs> the Ranger's successful use of the weapon in horseback fighting prompted Samuel Colt to call them the Texas Arm. In a famous battle with Comanches, famed Ranger Captain John Coffee Hayes used two Pattersons to fight off dozens of warriors, and a Comanche war chief later said Hayes had a bullet for every finger on his hand. By 1851, Colts, including the Patterson and its successor, the Walker Colt, so dominated the Texas Plains that one writer commented that, quote, there are probably in Texas about as many revolvers as men, male adults, and I doubt if there are 100 in the state of any other make.
2: With so many handguns around, mischief was inevitable, if not predictable. As a result, Texas became the first state in the Union to ban the carrying of handguns outside the home by private citizens. In 1871, the Texas Reconstruction Legislature passed a bill that read, in part, if any person in this state shall carry on or about his person saddle or in his saddlebags any pistol he shall be punished by a fine of not less than 25 nor more than 100 dollars about $2000 today it did contain two exemptions for travelers and citizens in a frontier county liable to incursion by hostile indians
4: so almost every county in texas was frontier right that's
2: pretty much a, that's pretty much all of texas back then It would be
0: 125 years before the law was altered and Texans could once again carry handguns. Open carrying of handguns, however, is still not allowed in Texas today. Open carry of rifles and shotguns has always been allowed. Several open carry bills have been submitted in the current 85th legislature, and I'll note that we are taping this on March 25th, 2015. So for the first time in 144 years, citizens of Texas may be able to legally carry a handgun openly in
1: public if it passes. In May 1995, then-Governor George Bush signed the first concealed carry law in Texas, and it ushered in a new age of private citizens carrying handguns in public. Predictions of dire consequences filled the news. A lawmaker from Austin predicted gunplay in hospital emergency rooms. Dallas lawmakers said frustrated drivers would shoot each other in traffic. A senator from San Antonio said it's going to be a much more dangerous and deadly society we have imposed on ourselves in Texas. The law has been on the books for 20 years now. The results are interesting. Homicides
3: have declined by about one-third, although the reasons for the decrease are less than clear. Meanwhile, uh, concealed handgun licensees in Texas have amassed an admirable record. According to a study published in 2012, with almost 600,000 Texans licensed to carry, CHL holders are 17.19 times less likely to commit a crime than the general public. This is far better than Texas law enforcement.
1: We're a long ways away today from where we were in 1840, 1850, 18, in the 1870s, in the days when there were Native American Indian tribes uh, on the frontier, where there was regular incursions from outlaws in Mexico or from soldiers from Mexico uh, and where, where there was a lot of crime uh, related uh, and outlawism in Texas. So what I'm interested in talking about is really kind of what the history of where, why it is that the Texans in the frontier days were so comfortable with their, with guns and handguns and rifles and weapons and where we are today and how that relates to where we are today with the current gun laws and the debates and the discussions about uh, where what place guns play in Texas society today.
4: One thing I think is very different about that time as opposed to this time is you don't go out to get a deer to feed your family for supper this day. <laughs> Back in those days, that was how you fed your family, unless you were a farmer and had oxen. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you go down to the grocery store and buy something. So the, the utility of, of guns is different in what their purpose is and what they're used for today than it was back then to some degree.
1: Right. But, well, to discard hunting from the discussion, I mean, hunting still has a very important part in Texas and Texas culture and Texas lifestyle. Sure. Um, so I think the discussion is really not necessarily about hunting, although... In, in those days, you also, if you went to deer, you might get ambushed by Comanche.
2: Yep. Well, when you go back and you look at the environment and the uh, society we had at the turn of the, uh, just at the end of the Civil War, you have to keep in mind that firearms then were about as commonplace as cell phones are today. Just about everybody had one of, that they had access to and everybody learned how to use them from the very, uh, from a very early age.
0: Well, I think that, that's an interesting point when you talk about firsthand knowledge and education. And I think that's maybe something as we're in a modern age, modern Americans, I think a lot, of us are, are, a lot of people are disconnected from guns. I think us that grew up in Texas as children were exposed to it and know that. But when, when you meet people from other places or more urban people, they're less comfortable with them because they don't have the familiarity with them. They're like an old person with a cell phone. Hey, (laughs) watching
2: and when you leave from the concept that you know it was about as common to see somebody with a firearm then as it is now with a cell phone keep in mind that you know these people that had these firearms carried them not only to get food you know when they went hunting they kept it to deal with uh wild animals uh outlaws comanches i'm here in comanche country myself so we have a lot of history involved with the Comanche people here. And as a result, you know, there's a we, I can go to our local museum and find references, you know, to gun battles with Comanches. And these were not these were not like you see in the western movies, you fired a few shots and the Comanches left you alone.
1: Well, and I have another question for you, Aaron, and, and something to think about is the concept of the militia to then and versus today is obviously, night and day, extraordinarily different. Can you kind of expand upon that?
2: Well, the militia back then was every able-bodied male. It mm-hmm. wasn't uh, within certain age brackets. If you were a male, you were able-bodied, meaning you could take up arms and fight and defend your nation. You were considered part of the militia. And now... Yeah,
1: and even women, even women and girls were expected to defend the cabin on the, on the
2: frontier. Exactly. And uh, now, you know, the militia while we still have the Militia Act in the United States government since the militia, as far as most people see it now, is actually the National Guard or the US Army.
1: Because we have a standing army now, mm-hmm. whereas before it was not a very large entity. Well let's 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 talk about though, let's unpack a little bit the the root of gun rights in what role it played in the Texas Revolution and in the early republic. Well I mean Santa Ana tried to disarm everyone. Right.
0: Yeah. And, that, and I mean, they
4: that, said no. As a yeah, matter of I mean, fact, they said come and take it, which right. is the name of this broadcast. Well I
1: hope, you're, I hope you catch that. You're listening. It was a great thing. It was yeah. a great day. But but I think the important thing is is that is that it was as Aaron said, the gun was essential to life in in the frontier. Right.
3: Right. But as Texas and the rest of the the nation started to become less of a frontier, obviously the necessity for you know, living a frontier lifestyle decreased over time. And as the organized police force and more urbanization took place, there was less of a need for every individual to be able to defend against an incursion at a moment's notice. Well,
0: it's very interesting. We read some of these early stories of history. And, uh, you know, even when I was doing some research on Juan Coy, who was one of the big players in the fracas at Dalyville, and he was out in Floresville, he was out in Kennedy, he was, he was out in, the, in, the, in kind of these small rural towns where there was lots of gun violence and lots of issues, but then everybody would go to San Antonio, and most of that was contained to, there might be a small scuffle or shooting in a saloon type thing where everybody was really drunk, but for the most part, there wasn't lots of widespread gunplay in the streets of the bigger cities of Texas at the time, even in that time. But once you got out in the woods, like it was, it was game on.
2: That all goes back to the old saying: a polite society or an armed society is a polite society. And when everybody's able to kill somebody for an for an offense, everybody tends to be polite and respectful.
1: <laughs> That's true. I <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm interested in. Um, so, you know, there's there's been times though, even even after the frontier era where, um, where gun violence was prevalent. So, you know, when I was reading about Bonnie and Clyde and, and the outlaws of the depression era, and, you know, that was a very violent time in, in certain areas and certain aspects. What, what type of laws were in place at the time regarding gun ownership and gun possession in like, let's say the, between the wars between 1914 and, 1918 and
4: 1945. Well, the- well I, remember, I remember seeing an ad for a Tommy gun held by a woman <laughs> that said it was a good weapon for the home. <laughs> I don't remember the date, but I think it was around 1919 or something like that. Okay. It was in 1934 that the United States government decided to ban those weapons unless you paid a fee to the government and got special
2: permission to own them. And that was done in the form of a tax stamp that's still around today. True.
0: Well, I guess this would maybe this comes to a bigger question now, and I'll, I'll say this: uh, we know from look, you know, we know we have listeners not just here in Texas; we have listeners across the United States, and actually people all over the world who listen to the show. So I think there's this image of what a Texan is. You know, all well, you you ride a horse to school, and you you know you have an oil well in your front yard, and all those kinds <laughs> of myths. But I wonder, you know, why are guns so important to freedom? And why are guns so associated to to Texas and what Texas means?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, we've already talked about the significance of the, you know, the popularity of six shooters in the hands of Texas Rangers. I think that's probably a big starting point for that, is Texas already has a frontier image. And then you pile on top of that, the reputation of the Texas Rangers as fierce fighters with their, you know, their uh, Walker Colts.
0: That's it's a pretty powerful image. Is the modern love of weapons and guns an affectation, or is it an expression?
4: I think it's I think it's probably both. I would agree. For some, uh, for some people, it is an affectation. For others, it's an expression. For example, I got my CHL because I wanted to exercise my Second Amendment right. I don't live in an area where I feel threatened. I don't go to places where I feel there is a threat. So I doubt that I will ever have to use it. I pray to God I don't. But I carry every day because it's my right. And I think that gets to the, the crux of the issue that doesn't seem to be well understood in America today is what is the purpose of the Second Amendment? It's not, it, it is for self-defense, but that's not really what it's for. It's for defense against a government that tries to tyrannize you.
2: Well, I... I'll agree with Paul on all that. Plus, for me, it's more of a it's more of a tool of independence as well, simply because for me, if I if I find myself in a situation that I do not anticipate, which is going to be any situation where I have to need a firearm, then that firearm gives me the independence to defend myself instead of waiting anywhere from 3 to 10 minutes for law enforcement to show up. Then take their pictures of the scene and take their reports and file them.
1: Let me ask a question. So we, like Mike said, we have listeners all over the world and there's preconceptions about Texans. What does the law say? And what does interpretation of the law say about licensing firearms and about uh, education about those firearms? Cause I know, I, I think we talked about what does the state, what does the Texas constitution say? And what is, what is, what does our interpretation currently of the US Constitution say and how do those where do those come together on this this subject?
2: The US Constitution, uh, the Second Amendment has been addressed in two landmark uh, Supreme Court decisions, the Hellers decision and the McDonald decision. And essentially the only aspect of the Second Amendment that these two decisions have addressed is the right to keep arms. They have not touched on the right to bear arms in the United States Supreme Court yet. Therefore, there is no case law that says one way or the other how that is applied by the court system. You move to the state constitution, and the state constitution has a provision for the legislature to, pre- to regulate the wearing of arms with a view to prevent crime.
4: Yeah, the, the Texas legislature... Has no authority under the Constitution to regulate the keeping of arms, only the bearing of them, which is kind of interesting. It's sort of the opposite of what the Supreme Court has right. ruled on.
1: So, so I think th- there's this image of the Texan today, of the, to, for lack of a better term, the the redneck with his wife beater shirt and his pickup truck and wanting to be able to carry his machine gun and his and his gigantic. Uh, you know, fifty shot uh, desert cult. I mean, uh, uh, a <laughs> desert eagle uh, into a school, and and not and just walk into a Walmart, buy that, and then walk into wherever he wants to go. So, so what does the law say about that, and what does Texas culture really say about that, that type of image?
2: Well, under the law, you have uh, the ownership of firearms is not regulated in Texas for non-felons and non and people that have not been charged or convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence. Therefore, as far as the ownership aspect, there's no problem. Now, as far as the carrying of arms, long guns are not regulated at all by the state of Texas. The carrying of handguns requires a license, and currently, you have to carry it concealed.
1: And to, get, and to get a license, you have to go through an education period of learning about firearms and safety and that, that sort of thing. Is that correct? And you pass a shooting and test. And you have to pass a shooting test. Is that right?
2: To a correct. degree, you uh, when you get your CHL, it's more about teaching you the knowledge on the self-defense laws for the state in the education portion. And okay. then there's a small proficiency test that – if you got any kind of capability of handling a firearm that you're going to be able to pass it.
0: Well, let me let me take it back to some history here because there's something I was thinking about with this uh recently on this topic. When you look at these early laws of Texas and the evolution of sort of I think more in frontier places and laws and laws like we have there's and even in today's law, there's a very much a heavy burden and weight placed on property ownership you have a right to defend your land. Then we have our own version of the castle doctrine, and there's sort of a personal, you know, somebody tries to affront your your personal stuff. There's this idea of if you own something, you have a legal right to protect it to a certain degree.
3: Yeah, what I find interesting about that is, you know, you're saying the historical documents having an emphasis on property, is when you think about it, it you can kind of see where that comes from, because people that were coming to Texas, especially the the anglos from the united states and elsewhere were coming to stake their claim to find their their new life right and part of that was possessing that land it's like this is my land i'm i've been granted this land it is mine i'm going to protect this property and in the early di- early days there like like we've said there was no standing army yeah so in the early days of texas when it was still a frontier there there was no standing army there was no Pervasive police force, you know, state or otherwise. I mean, you had the Texas Rangers roving the frontier, but as we said before, it was up to individual landowners, individual property owners, to protect their property.
2: Well, you also have the fact that uh, even today, even though you do have the standing police force and you do have the, uh, you do have all these mechanisms in place to protect property. You know. These mechanisms cannot react instantly. Therefore, when true. something happens, it's up to the property owner. You know, until those mechanisms come into play, it's up to the property owner to deal with it. And
3: right, and I think I was going to say um, that's true. And something else that's emphasized in every safety presentation I've been to with the police force: um, a large burden is on the property owner to do everything they can to uh, prevent any sort of you know uh, violence and well any sort of um, assault on your property like you know lock your doors don't leave valuable things in your cars you, you should
0: don't go ask him for it's trouble.
3: always good to emphasize the prevention of something happening so that you don't have to take it to the extreme of dealing with it and i think it's always good to remember you know mr miyagi said it you know the best way to win a fight is to not get into one to begin with
4: And actually that brings up another part of the CHL training, which is conflict avoidance. That's emphasized in the training, and you're taught to do everything in your power to walk away, to not get involved, to not escalate the violence yourself, and, and to, to try to de-escalate the other person if you possibly can.
0: The, unfortunately, Texas has not enacted a law that requires everyone to be smart and do smart things all the time. <laughs>
1: Well, it goes back to what Aaron said about in the frontier days, you were taught from a very young age to use and handle a firearm. Like you were taught to respect that weapon because it was part of your livelihood. It was part of your it was it was part of your extension of you. Well, and even more so
0: in all the early reports we read of these these great stories of Texas history and these battles. Every story you read is the Texans fought like lions they f- were fierce fighters. They were, you know, every Texan, any Texan man with a weapon in his hand was something to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. And it was not, you know, it wasn't just like, uh, you know, they knew their business and their business was surviving on the frontier.
1: I, I think it's interesting reading, you were talking about earlier about the crime statistics since the concealed handgun license law went into effect 20 years ago. CHL holders are 17.9% less likely to have been involved in, a, in any crime at all. Um and I think that that's that's a good point to make. Is like those people who are following the law, of going through the process of getting a CHL, are are setting themselves in a class by themselves. Like are are they're actually increasing the safety overall of the state. The other thing is interesting is that the 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 murder rate in the state has gone down, but the 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 Aaron, I think you said the conclusions on that there? It's inconclusive as to why that's happening. Is that right?
2: There's a, there's a saying, uh, correlation does not mean causation.
1: Right, right. I th- and I think overall, the murder rate has gone down in the country for lots of various reasons, not just because of the possibility that someone might be yeah, legally carrying a firearm.
4: One scientist made the controversial observation that abortion has reduced the crime rate. <laughs>
0: Well, well, those of you who have read Freakonomics, it's a great chapter in the book. But let me bring it to this. is I, I understand sort of the role guns played in early Texas, and I do applaud the effort. I mean, it's a tremendous—let well, me tell, say it this way. Um, if you've ever watched somebody— who doesn't know how to operate a cell phone, operate a cell phone or try to program a VCR or somebody who gets very befuddled at the instructions of putting something together. I wish people had the respect and put in the time and effort that people who do achieve a CHL certification in Texas, they take time. You have to purchase a weapon. You have to spend time at the range practicing. You have to learn how to clean your gun. You have to learn the ins and outs of the law. And there's something to be said for taking time to educate yourself and understand it, and to have respect for it, and I think that is sort of the thing that maybe people miss is is they see it as this bloodthirsty braggart. I want to walk around with a big gun on my hip and feel like an important person, and I'm just looking for trouble. And I think the truth is is that most people that pursue this path uh, probably are just kind of passionate about it, and it's something that they're they're investing a lot of time and effort into. And I, and I I'm glad that there is a cost associated with it in terms of improving yourself and learning the laws.
2: Very much the case. In my experience, when somebody puts forth the time, the money, and the effort to go through a process like the concealed handgun licensing process, they tend to they tend to make sure that they can maintain that rather than just throw it away the first chance they have.
4: And I was going to say that, uh, there's also a lot of misunderstanding of the laws in Texas by a lot of people who are less familiar with them than CHL holders are. For example, there's a recent case of a fellow that got arrested for entering a building because they had a sign on the door that said no guns are allowed. But in Texas, that sign has to meet very specific requirements. The, the height of the letters has to be just so. It has to be in both Spanish and English And this sign was not. So he was not committing any offense at all. And yet he got arrested by the police. And they actually took his CHL, the plastic, away from him. He later got it back because he hadn't broken any laws. But even the police in that small town didn't understand the law.
3: Yeah, but in a world where a lot of people still believe that it's illegal to pick a blue bonnet off the side of the road. Yes, I still um, get um, emails from people about that, by the way. It's not surprising that people are... Get Still get confused about stuff. You're wrong. You're uh, wrong. <laughs> I, I know
0: for a fact uh, you, everybody speaking today hasn't from our show has at some time in their life when they're a boy or something uh, held and operated a firearm in some capacity. I just want to reiterate, just say that I think that it's glib to look at the culture of Texas and assume that it's a gun culture and that they're in love with the idea of the gun and there's this romantic part of it. It is a piece of it. But for anyone who um, has come of age and had their father showed them how to shoot a weapon or has gone down and actually, when you hold uh, a rifle or a handgun or a shotgun or something, you actually hold it and you've experienced the power of that weapon, Um, there's there's a, a fear to it and there's a respect that you gain from it. And I think that people who have an experience that or maybe on the other side of that. But maybe that's part of what makes growing up in Texas so special.
1: Well, and I'll give you my opinion as a Texan. I think that someone who thinks that they have the right or should have the right to walk around with a six gun on their side so they can act like John Wesley Harden. Uh, should not have a gun and should not be allowed to have a gun, not just because John Wesley Hardin was a cold blooded murderer. He was a terrible person. Right. But, <laughs> to, to but the, the general idea to think it's going to, I want to, you know, I want to walk around with a gun on my, in my holster like they did in the wild West. And, and because, because that's cool or because that's what I think a Texan should be. That's, that's not a person I want to have a, to be able to walk around with a firearm. I want someone who has put, like you said, put the time and the effort into learning to respect and appreciate the awesome power that a firearm does indeed have. You can't legislate smarts.
4: You know, the two uh, most consistent explanations I see on the Texas CHL forum for why do you want open carry is number one, in case I happen to reveal my weapon, I don't want to get, fined or arrested for it because right now the law is ambiguous and it's possible you could get arrested just because the wind blew up your shirt and somebody saw your gun and then the second reason is because it's hot in the summertime and i don't want the gun against my flesh (laughs) so the only way i can do that is to open carry it those are the two primary reasons i see for people who already carry another point i wanted to bring up you you mentioned the The mystique about Texas and guns, it's kind of interesting. I think now we have somewhere around 850 or 900,000 CHL licensees in Texas. Aaron, you can probably straighten me out if that's not true. I
2: want to say that's correct. I'm not current with, I'm not up to date on the current numbers.
4: In Florida, what do you think of first? Senior citizens, right? Right. Well, they have like 1.5 million CHL (laughs) licensees. So if Texas is a gun culture, what the heck is Florida?
1: Yeah, they got a lot of alligators there too, though. So I could True. I could certainly see the need to carry. Around. I think if you live
0: in a county, I think there's probably a law. If you live in a county that has or you may encounter an alligator, you're allowed to carry a weapon. Uh, actually, no. there should be laws like uh, actually, you're you an idiot a- if you don't. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, that's I again. It's I. I can I think we could stand here and we could share lots of uh, you know I remember growing up kind of out in the country and, and there was people that kept a little 410 snake charmer which is a small they kept a small shotgun under their under the seat of their truck in case they were ever had to get out and there or, were snakes or on about.
1: the gun rack on their truck
0: well that's where that's called the uh, that's the display rack for people to steal your guns <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, as somebody I know first hadn't happened to them yeah, I, I haven't seen a truck with a gun rack since like like probably like 1978. So. Uh, I don't know.
1: Aaron lives in Comanche country, so probably he sees a few more.
0: Aaron lives dangerously close to Oklahoma.
2: <laughs> I think. Where, where do you live, Aaron? Actually, it's uh, dangerously close to New Mexico. Oh, that's w- right. What's You're on ta- that side of it. What,
1: what town do you live in?
2: Are you familiar with uh, Seminole, Andrews, or Brownfield?
1: Uh, no, uh, Andrews quite well. My dad grew up in Wink.
2: Okay, well... Seminole, which is where I work, is directly north of Andrews, and yeah. then yeah. northeast of Seminole is Seagraves, which is where I live.
1: Yeah, that's God's country because He's the only one that wants it. <laughs> Pretty
0: much. Let me ask you a question: What's it like to live on the moon? Is it awesome? I mean, other than the no oxygen. Well, in
3: my, well, I, I drove through
0: there
3: in the. Yeah, I say I drove drove through there in the winter that area once, and it's a lot more red than than gray so it's probably more More like like mars Mars, yeah yeah you could actually make that
2: point
1: (laughs) i think that part of the chl process or part of the open carry licensing process or whatever type of licensing process should be it should be you should have to like go out into the frontier and ride learn to ride a horse and learn to shoot from the from the back (laughs) of a horse and uh, if you
0: can pick up a silver dollar yeah. off the ground at a full gallop, like yeah. the uh, original Texas basically, Rangers could.
1: basically you should be you should have the same training that Creed Taylor had growing up uh, on the front Texas frontier.
0: You know, the news is going to say in a shocking new statistic, <laughs> horse related horse related pistol injuries are up 226 <laughs> percent in rural Texas. <laughs> they go, we don't know what's happening in Texas, but it's not good. Today we've talked about guns, we've talked about kind of the modern struggle of what's going on with gun rights in Texas, and we've tried to put a bit of a historical perspective on it. The other thing I would like to add is, is that all over the world, no matter where you go, Texas is one of the friendliest, safest places to visit. So we hope that we've brought you a little light about the culture of Texas, and we can't wait for you to come visit us very soon. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at BrainStable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to BrainStable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at HistoryPodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java.
1: I'm Max Sean with two N's.
0: Paul Schmell at Twitter.com. And I'm Scotticus. And if you want to follow me, it's at NTX. We'd like to thank our good friend Paul Schmell for appearing on the show today and helping us research and write the episode. We'd also like to thank our new friend, Aaron Heath, from the Gun Rights in Texas podcast. Please be sure to listen to his show. It's very informative if you're into Texas politics and guns. We know you love the show, and we need your help. Be sure to tell your friends, and please leave a review on iTunes. That helps us out and finds listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember, that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants wants you
1: anyway.